0: The God of the Bible is a God of set times. He is the master of time. He is sovereign over time. Time is part of his creation. After all, he is eternal. So living in his eternality, he does not have that sense of the constrictions of time or time passing. He created time. I have oftentimes made the joke that he uh, created time so that everything wouldn't happen all at once. He stretched things out over the course of time. But he is also a God of very specific times. He is the God of set times when you read in the Old Testament in his dealings with Israel when God lays out the feasts and he lays out the months. He determined what would be the first month of their year, and how that would be determined. And on the 14th day of that first month, there would be the first of three yearly feasts. And during those feasts that happened at particular moments on the calendar, they were required to do certain things. One of the translations of that word, feasts, is set times. These are the set times of the Lord. And God, before he began anything, before he began creation at all, determined within himself what the calendar of creation was going to be, what was going to happen, when it was going to happen, and that's why he's able to say things in advance and give them time limitations, like saying that Judah was going to go into the Babylonian captivity, but that they'd only be there 70 years. He's able to set particular times for certain things to happen. He can say that Israel is going to be in the wilderness for 40 years. He's a God who utilizes time as one of the ways that he demonstrates his sovereignty over all things. And so we see in the Bible several references to God being very specific about time, not just time past, And the fact that he can demand things that have already passed as if they were present. But he also says what the future times are going to be. And one of the most repeated phrases in the Bible is that God has set aside a particular day, a particular time in which he is going to do eschatologically the things that he has predicted he is going to do. You may recall when we were looking at Paul on Mars Hill, for instance, one of the things that Paul said to the Athenians, and I think I mentioned this last week, but I just mentioned it in passing, starting in chapter 17 at verse 30, Paul said, therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance, a particular set of time, a period of time, a series of years where human beings were ignorant of God until God declared himself, revealed himself to human beings. Therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now, at this particular time, declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he has Fixed a day, that is just such interesting language. He has already determined, predetermined, a particular day on which a particular thing is going to happen. This particular thing that's going to happen is that he is going to judge the world. He has set apart a day in which he is going to judge the world in righteousness through the man that he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That's very, very specific language and it's meant to be specific that God chose a specific day where he will do a specific thing through a specific person who he appointed and has already furnished the proof to demonstrate that that is the one who will righteously judge the whole world on the particular day that God has determined. God is a God of set times, and so one of the more well-known phrases that we see throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New, is this phrase, the day of the Lord, and people are sometimes a little sketchy, a little vague about what that means, but this next section of Isaiah is going to define it for us. It is the day of God's judgment, that very day that Paul talked about, that day where God is going to judge the world in righteousness through Jesus Christ, and he has already produced the evidence that he is going to judge the world and that he is going to do it through Christ. He gave that evidence through the resurrection. Well, back here in Isaiah 2, we ended last week with human beings running for the rocks and the caves and the dens of the earth and we saw that it sort of echoed it sort of reflected it sort of foreshadowed what we already see in the book of tribulation in the book of tribulation in the book of revelation in revelation 6 verses 15 and 16 The kings of the earth, the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? There is a day, there is a particular day, there is a fixed day, there is a moment coming in the future that God has already determined on the eternal calendar of events that take place in his creation. He has already determined what that day is, and one of the hallmarks of that day is that the human beings who are left on planet earth are going to run to the rocks and the caves and the dens of the earth and say, fall on us. It would be better to be crushed by rocks than to stand in front of the wrath of God. Well, that theme is going to continue in Isaiah 2. We're going to start reading today at verse 12. That's where we left off. But even in verse 19, the men will go into the caves and the rocks and into the holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and before the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. So that is a hallmark of the day of the Lord. Now, there are several prophets in the Old Testament who describe the day of the Lord, and it's never good. It's never a description of happiness. It's never a description of good things happening on the planet. It's always a description of terror, of darkness, of people running for cover. And so, Isaiah has already told us in chapters 1 and 2 That Israel is terribly, terribly guilty. So guilty, in fact, that God likens them to a prostitute who is sick throughout. There is no wholesomeness, no goodness, no health in the entirety of the body. And they are unfaithful and they have committed their prostitution with foreign gods So they are both unfaithful spiritually, they are unhealthy spiritually, and physically he is going to punish them because of their terribly bad rebellious condition. And then the very next thing we read starting at the beginning of chapter 2 is, and oh yeah, they've got a glorious future, and oh yeah, God is going to restore them. And yeah, God is going to keep all the promises that he ever made to the house of Jacob. He's going to keep those promises because he made those promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then starting at verse 12, we bump into language that says, for the Lord of hosts will have a day. The NASB adds the words of reckoning just to kind of clarify it. But this is a direct reference to that day of the Lord. A particular day that is coming. For the Lord of hosts will have a day against everyone who is proud and lofty. And against everyone who is lifted up so that he will make them abased. Okay, so there's this day coming. There's this prediction of a day. So if we try to put all those pieces together and we're not even through two chapters yet of the book of Isaiah. We put that all together, and what we get is, Israel is terribly rebellious and terribly sick, and a depraved prostitute. And Israel has this glorious day coming, this glorious restoration happening, this glorious future that God has promised them. And in between the state that we find them in, in Isaiah's day, And the state that they're going to be in, in the glorious future, in between those two things, there's going to be a judgment from God, a day of reckoning from God. And that is part of how he is going to purify. That is one of the ways that he is going to correct. That is one of the ways that he is going to bring Israel to that glorious future that he has already promised them. And the predictions now, starting in the last half of Isaiah 2, the predictions now of that day and what it's going to be like are just awful, are just horrific. I mean, are so bad that it would indeed be better to have large boulders dropped on you than to have to endure the day of God. And then over the course of the Bible... We see prophet after prophet add to our understanding and knowledge of what the day of the Lord is. And they all add more detail and more detail. And it's never good detail. But the further you read in the Bible, the further you read the prophecies, the further you understand that the day of the Lord is going to be a time of terror and darkness. And then you get to the book of Revelation in the New Testament... And you get yet more detail about the day of the Lord. In fact, there is some controversy, some interpretation, which I do happen to agree with, that at the beginning of the book of Revelation, when John says, I was on Patmos on the Lord's day. Some people say, well, see, that means he was there on a Sunday. What I think he's saying is, I was on the Isle of Patmos And what I saw was the Lord's day, the day of the Lord, Yahweh's day. Because then what he goes on to describe, what he is told to write down, the prophecy that he lays out is the terror of what that time of judgment and the time of God's wrath is going to be like. So contextually, it would make much more sense to say that he was describing the day of the Lord. So Old Testament or New Testament What we see and what we know for sure is there is a day coming, a day of judgment, a day of reckoning. It's going to be done through Christ and it's primarily going to concern Israel as God corrects Israel in order to reestablish them and give them that glorious future that he has promised them. But even as he is pouring out his wrath on Israel, he is then going to bring that wrath out to the unbelieving world Because God is going to have that day of reckoning with all his enemies. Got it? Mm -hmm. This is the feel-good message of the week, by the way. (laughs) For the day of reckoning is coming for the Lord of hosts... Depending on your interpretation, that will say Lord of Hosts, which means Yahweh, who is in charge of everyone and everything, the armies of heaven, the inhabitants of the earth. He is everybody's captain and chief and Lord. Some of your translations will say the Lord God Almighty. And that phrase, whether it's translated Lord of Hosts or whether it's translated Lord God Almighty appears 60 times in the book of Isaiah. This is phraseology that Isaiah is very fond of. He likes identifying the God of Israel as the God of everyone, the God of hosts, the God who has all the power. He has all the might. And if he is the God who has all the power and all the might, then he is the God who can do whatever he wants, which means when the day of reckoning arrives, when that day ticks off the calendar, When it is time for him to unleash his wrath, there's not anything anybody can do about it. Because he is God Almighty. And I think that's why Isaiah keeps calling him that. Keeps pointing out that he is the Lord God of Sabaoth. He's in charge of the armies of heaven. He's in charge of the hosts. Everybody, everywhere, he's in charge He has all the power, and so when he decides that it's time to pour out his wrath, you can only imagine what kind of wrath that's going to be. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be here for that. As I say frequently, run to Christ. That's the only escape plan. If you don't like that whole day of the Lord thing, that whole day of the Lord concept, there is an escape route, but it goes through Christ. Run to Christ. All right. I think that's all the introducing I need to do. Maybe. Theoretically. (laughs) Isaiah 2 starting at verse 12. For the Lord of hosts will have a day. Against everyone who is proud and lofty. And against everyone who is lifted up. That he may be abased. So what is the first thing God goes after when he finally pours out his wrath? Pride. He's going after everybody who has a high look, everybody who feels lofty and proud. He's going to abase them. And in fact, I believe that it is their pride, it is their arrogance, it is their self-sufficiency that is the very reason that they haven't come to Christ and why they are still on the planet when God is pouring out that wrath. Because their chief problem is that they're full of pride. Mm -hmm. And it will be against all the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up against all the oaks of Bashan. Now those two phrases, the cedars of Lebanon and the oaks of Bashan, are used occasionally in the Old Testament to talk about people, types of people. Remember that this prophecy is against Jerusalem and Judah. Not the individuals, but the collection, the nation, the city. And so I think Isaiah is again using a bit of descriptive language to say that some people are so high and so lofty and so lifted up, they're like the tallest trees in the cedars of Lebanon forest. The cedars of Lebanon are referred to several times in the Old Testament and in the establishment of Jerusalem because there was so much good wood that could be brought from Lebanon in order to build like David's house of cedar. So the loftiest of human beings, the ones with the highest looks and the proudest looks, the ones who lord their own superiority over other people, those are the people that God is going to go after first. They will be against, that day will be against the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, all the mighty trees, all the strong trees, all the trees that can't be taken down in a storm. God's going to take them all down. Against all the lofty mountains. Now you know that mountains, even in the book of Revelation, throughout the Bible, mountains are oftentimes kingdoms, nations. And so all the lofty mountains and against all the hills that are lifted up, all of the arrogant nations who feel self-sufficient, who trusted in their power, in their might, in their strength, in their horses, in their chariots, in their weapons of warfare, in their riches, in their gold, in their silver, they trusted in all that. And so God is going to demonstrate to them that they have trusted in all the wrong things against all the lofty mountains and against all the hills that are lifted up against every high tower against every fortified wall well every city in the middle east had fortified towers they had fortified walls that was the way that they stayed safe towers so they could see the enemy coming large thick walls so that they could fight from the walls and fight down on their enemy, and God says the high towers and the fortified walls are not going to protect you. When the wrath of God is coming, he's going to take down all the defenses that human beings are trusting in. Mm. All the stuff that made people feel secure so that they could be lofty and egocentric and full of pride, God is going to take them all down. Verse 16 says, against all the ships of Tarshish, And all the beautiful craft. The ships of Tarshish is a reference to trading. Buying, selling, trading. The Middle East was dependent on the trade ships that came from Tarshish. And God is going to be against all of that trade. All of that welfare of the proud people who are trusting in their own ability to take care of themselves. And against all the beautiful craft, against all the ships, against all the things that they take pride in, God is going to take it all down, verse 17, and the pride of man will be humbled, and the loftiness of man will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. See that reference today again, it keeps coming around. At that moment, at that specific time, when God finally stops suffering long with human beings and finally decides to pour out his wrath against his enemies, that is a particular day that is coming. He knows the day. He knows when it's coming. And when that day comes... The pride of man, the loftiness of men, is all going to be humbled and abased because the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Look at verse 11, back up a little bit to where we left off last week. The proud look of man will be abased and the loftiness of man will be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Are you feeling a theme yet? (laughs) that the reason that God is pouring out his wrath against the arrogant, prideful human beings of the earth is because they have stopped recognizing him. They have stopped worshiping him. They have stopped giving praise to him and they have worshiped everything else. The work of their own hands, their ability to get riches and do trade, their ability to build high walls and strong towers, Or high towers and strong walls, however those adjectives go. Their ability to take care of themselves, their feeling of self-sufficiency, God is going to wreck all of that once he starts pouring out his wrath because that predetermined day has come. And he's going to demonstrate to them that everything that they trusted in is nothing compared to the almighty power of God almighty. Verse 18 The idols, the idols that God is undermined with, the idols will completely vanish. And men will go into the caves and the rocks and into the holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and before the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. Okay, so last week we saw Verse 9, so the common man has been humbled and the man of importance has been abased. But do not forgive them. Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. Do you feel a theme developing? When the day of the Lord comes, as I've already said tonight, when it comes, one of the hallmarks of the wrath of God is that the human beings who are under it will run for any cover they can find. When their cities, when their strong walls, when their high towers are not enough to protect them, when their wealth, when their gold, their silver is not enough to protect them, when their stature within the society and their pride and their high looks are not enough to protect them they're going to run to the rocks and the caves and the dens and they're going to cry, fall on me and hide me from the wrath of the Lamb because the day of his wrath has come. Men will go into caves and rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and before the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. In that day... See how often you get this reference to at that particular moment, at that particular time, the time that God has predetermined in that day, men will cast away to the moles and to the bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship. God has told them, you're not to make any graven image. Mm -hmm. Then they set about to make graven images. And then to make their graven images even more attractive, instead of just making them out of wood or metal, they started making them out of gold and silver, decking them out so that they looked like something that deserved to be worshipped. But it was still always the work of men's hands. And so in that day when God shows up, in that day when the wrath of God falls on human beings, what are they going to do with their idols? They're going to give them away to the moles and the bats. That's really funny language. The moles live underground. The word can also be translated rodents. Underground animals. They're going to cast the work of their hands. The idols they have made, they're going to cast underground. Or to the bats. Where do bats live? Caves. In caves. They're going to put the idols they've made in the caves and underground as if if we hide them, God won't see them. God won't be quite as angry with me if I just get rid of the idols and just hide them. In that day, men will cast away to the moles and to the bats their idols of silver and gold. I just find that so typical of human beings. They're not repenting because they understand the glory of God or the value of God or their need to worship God and be in communion with him they're repenting because they got caught they're repenting because God's back and he's angry and so that's the time that they get rid it's like well why weren't you getting rid of those why weren't you giving the bats and moles something to worship years ago It's because years ago, the wrath of God wasn't here yet. And so we thought we were getting away with it. That's one of the great deceptions of human life is that we continue in our pride, in our arrogance, in our sinfulness, in our rebellion against God. And because God has not punished us yet, we think we're getting away with it. And yet God is keeping a record of all of it. And you are either going to have to pay for it When you yourself experience the wrath of God, either here on the planet or eternally when he sends you into outer darkness or into the lake of fire, into the place where the fire is never quenched, the worm never sleeps, you're still going to have to pay. Or it's paid for through your Savior, through your Redeemer, through your Advocate. And those are the only two options. You either run to Christ He is the escape plan from the wrath of God or you yourself have to bear the wrath of God and humans in their ego, in their pride, think that just because God has not punished them yet, that he's not going to. They say, well, where is that wrath of God? Sure, we read about the wrath of God in the Old Testament. Sure, you can read about that stuff, but you know... We might read about how in the early church, every once in a while, God brought people dead for taking communion wrong or for lying about their giving, but, but he hasn't done that lately. He hasn't done that for the last couple thousand years, and he hasn't done it since the Old Testament where he just kills whole groups of people in a night with an angel. We, we haven't seen that, and therefore, since we haven't seen it in our own lifetime or haven't seen it in the last couple thousand years, it must not exist. Except that the Bible says, there's a day. That day is coming. That day is predicted by all the prophets of the Old Testament. All the prophets of Yahweh say, there's this day coming. There's this day of the Lord. And when it comes, you who fall under its wrath are going to beg the rocks and the stones to crush you rather than face the wrath of God. You get to the book of Revelation, you read things like, once the bottomless pit is opened up, the demons come out like locusts and sting men, and men pray to die, and they can't. God knows how to pour out some wrath. Now, if you find all that kind of frightening and kind of scary, it's meant to be. That's why this language is in here. It's meant to warn you. It was meant to warn Israel and then it's carried over into the book of Revelation because it's meant to warn the church. At the beginning of the book of Revelation, you have letters to the seven churches. There are warnings to the churches. Repent, come back to your first love or I'm going to come on you suddenly like a thief in the night. By the way, that thief in the night language always refers to the day of the Lord. It never refers to the rapture of the church. It's going to happen suddenly. Why is it going to happen suddenly? Because that day is here. That moment on the calendar is finally here. And when God sees that day, regardless of all the foreshadows that he has developed, no matter how crazy this earth is, no matter how many wars or rumors of war, no matter how much famine or pestilence there is on the planet, no matter how much ethnos against ethnos, and boy, don't we see a lot of that these days... But no matter how much of that happens, those are just birth pangs. Jesus himself said, the end is not yet. Those are the birth pangs building up to it. And you're just going to see those birth pangs and see those birth pangs and see those birth pangs. And then that day is going to hit. And human beings are going to be utterly unprepared for it because they're too busy in their self-sufficiency thinking that they're just fine because God has never done that in their lifetime. And he hasn't done it for a couple thousand years, so therefore he's not going to do it. And then he's going to do it. It's the same argument that people make for God not restoring Israel. They say, well, he hasn't done it in a few thousand years, so he's not going to do it. And yet there are all these prophecies, all these promises that God is going to give Israel a glorious future. He just hasn't done it yet. It's the same thing that people say when we talk about Christ coming back to get his church. The return of Christ. Even Peter talked about it and said in the last days, people are going to say, where is the promise of his coming? Because since he left, everything continues just the same old way. So where is that promise of his coming? Peter's answer is, You don't understand. A day with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. In other words, he hasn't been back for 2,000 years. That's like two days in the mind of God who lives outside of time. And in his eternity, he has created time, everything I said at the beginning. And so he can sit back and watch time tick off until it comes to the day that he is going to send his son back. And until the day that he is going to unleash his wrath until the day that he is going to restore Israel, because Isaiah later is going to describe the, the restoration of Israel as a nation born in a day. God has all these calendrical days that are predetermined where he's going to do things. And the reason he hasn't done them yet is because that day is not here which is very much like Jesus walking around on the planet when they tried to make him king or when they tried to take him up on a high mountain and throw him off, throw him off the cliff. In all those circumstances, he said, it's not my time yet. It's not my time. It's not that day yet. It's not that particular Passover yet, in that particular year yet. But once it came, he said, I have to go to Jerusalem. It's time. So God is working on a very, very specific calendar. That's all I'm driving at, and if it feels like I'm beating a dead horse here, I'm just trying to grind this into your collective thinking that God does not randomly react to human beings. He doesn't react to human beings in salvation, and he doesn't react to human beings pouring out his wrath according to the times that he has already determined. He's long-suffering, and he's patient, but he also said that day will come, and when that day comes, it gets really, really ugly. In that day, men will cast away to the moles and to the bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, in order to go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. Stop regarding man whose breath is in his nostrils, for why should he be esteemed? Okay, the comparison is between everlasting God, whose existence and purpose for being is found solely within himself, the one who said to Moses, I am, because I am, you go tell Pharaoh that, you say, I am, the only one whose reason for existing is found solely and completely within himself, versus People, and if you don't take the next breath, the next nose full of air that is in your nose right now, if you don't suck that into your lungs, you're dead. Mm. Should I bring this up now? This seems like a convenient place to bring it up. I was going to make a video, but I'll just go ahead and say it here. Only one life matters. There's only one life that actually matters matters and the evidence that only one life matters is that he's the one who got up again and is still alive but everybody else for the entire history of planet earth forever and there have been billions of people on the planet and they have lived and during their lifetime their life mattered to them but then they have all died and you can't name the vast majority of them You don't know who they were, where they were, or what they did on a day-to-day basis. Their life mattered to them. But once they were gone, it didn't matter to anybody else. And the moment you die, life goes on. Without you, that's how much you matter. You don't matter. One life matters. That one life is the predetermining life between the living, ever-living and the dying and the ever-dying. That's the only life that matters. Stop regarding man. Can you see why I thought of that? Mm-hmm. Stop regarding men. Stop lifting up men. So many things, I think, are going to clear up mid-November, because there's an election coming. And every time that we here in America hold an election, all kinds of things get ramped up and I'm waiting to see what the October surprise is going to be and everybody's going to choose sides and they're going to fight and they're going to argue and they're going to riot with each other and heaven forbid you should wear a hat in public because somebody's going to get you for your hat and people are just going to argue past each other and they're never going to talk to each other or come to any kind of agreements with each other because they are all convinced that their guy is the guy that's going to fix it. Whatever it is. Whatever their reason for voting is, whatever their issue is, I'm going to vote for the family or I'm going to vote against abortion or I'm going to vote for women's rights or I'm going to vote for... Everybody's voting on their issues because they all believe that the next guy is the guy who's going to fix it and planet earth one more time has a long rich history of billions of people who have all attempted to self-govern and all of them collectively have failed to fix it because the it is the sin problem That is leading to the inexorable wrath of God. And nobody fixes that. So, why are you regarding men as if men are gonna fix it? There's only one person who can fix it, and he is the only life that matters. Stop regarding man, because he is not eternal. His breath is in his nostrils, and the minute he stops breathing, he's dead, he's gone, and most of the world won't remember him. Look, you can remember the names of a few somewhat famous people who existed on planet Earth at some point. If I say the name Alexander the Great, we all go, whoa, okay, I know, I know about him. I sort of know some of his Historic exploits. Okay, how many people in here actually know him like know what food he preferred? We know his name because of his historic exploits. But then he had a whole lot of generals and foot soldiers who worked for him, and there were people who lived their entire life in the army of Alexander the Great. Name one. And we don't know, we don't know because those people lived, they did their exploits, they died, and then history forgets because we're too busy worrying about our life right here and now. We think our life is what matters. We We think history began when we were born. And that's all that really matters. So stop regarding man whose breath is in his nostrils, why should he be esteemed? Why should he be lifted up? On what basis can any human being actually be proud? Because if you look at human beings, all they really are are people who are on this planet for a very short period of time. Their life is a vapor, they fade away like the grass, During the time they're here, they are sinful, depraved, egocentric. They get sick and they die. And not all of them get old and die. Some die quite young. That's how incredibly, I was going to say fragile, but that's almost too kind a word. That's how incredibly incapable human beings are. And they're going to suffer the wrath of God or they're going to run to the Redeemer. But stop regarding human beings as if they deserve to be esteemed. Make sense? Yes. I had someone the other day in my email refer to me as Reverend McClarty. I wrote back and said, no man deserves reverence. Why would you revere any man? That's what that word reverend means, as if somebody in the church deserves to be revered. You'd think of all places where people should not be revered. It would be the church. And yet there are people within the church walking around carrying the title reverend. Today, David Morris called me. By the way, he said to say hello to all of you. He can't hear you, but I appreciate you saying that. He referred to me as the right reverend McLarty today because that's a joke between the two of us. I corrected him and said that is the very right reverend. (laughs) So, Esquire. (laughs) Chapter 3, verse 1, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah Both supply and support. In other words, he's going to take all the food and water. And he's going to take all the mechanisms of support. He's already told you that he's going to get rid of the ships that are doing the trading. He's going to make Jerusalem starve. He's going to make them thirsty. He's going to make them hungry. I will take from them both supply and support. The whole supply of bread. And the whole supply of water. The mighty man. And the warrior. The judge and the prophet. The diviner and the elder. The captain of fifty. And the honorable man. The counselor. And the expert artisan. And the skillful enchanter. And I will make mere lads. Princes. Princes and capricious children will rule over them. Okay, that's God's judgment against Jerusalem and Judah, that he is going to cut off their water supply, he's going to cut off their food supply, and he's going to make it so that everybody, that's the whole point of the list, it doesn't matter who you are, from the mightiest of men to the judges, to the prophets and diviners, all the way down to artisans. Skillful workers and skillful enchanters, just everybody within the society are all going to suffer together, are all going to suffer collectively, and he's going to take children now within that society 2,700 years ago. Children were considered the least knowledgeable, which is why it was so necessary to raise them up, to teach them, to teach them skills, to teach them wisdom because they were considered to be ignorant in the best possible meaning of that word. And yet God says, you're such fools, I'm going to make mere lads and capricious children, children who are just going to decide randomly, children who aren't going to make decisions based on any kind of knowledge or wisdom or experience, they're just going to decide randomly And they're the ones that are going to rule over you. In other words, I'm going to turn everything upside down. Everything is going to be backwards from the way you think it ought to be. And the people will be oppressed. Each one, each person will be oppressed by another. And each one by his neighbor. And the youth will storm against the elder, and the inferior against the honorable. Boy, that sounds vaguely familiar, Mm -hmm. because we see a certain amount of that going on in the world today. It's not difficult to turn on the TV these days and see people both oppressed and feeling oppressed, and arguing that they are oppressed, and claiming they are oppressed, And then each one is going to be oppressed by some other, and each one by his neighbor. And the young ones are going to storm against the older ones. Boy, we find that going around today. And the youth are going to storm against the elder, and the inferior against the honorable. That means the people of low estate are going to fight against the people of higher estate. We see that going on today. The only reason that I draw the parallel between what Isaiah described as the future for Israel and what we see right now going on in America is that the reason Isaiah described it for Judah was to say that's how depraved and sinful and judged they are going to be. And as we see it going on in this very moment in America, I would argue that is part of the judgment of God. One of the most common demonstrations of the judgment of God in the Bible is that God withdraws himself from people, from nations. And then those nations, those people, collapse on themselves because God has removed himself. And we see that going on in our society at this very moment. And the result is exactly what's described here. As part of the judgment of people, Mere lads are going to be their princes. Capricious children are going to rule over them, and the people are going to be oppressed, each one by some other person, and each one by his neighbor, the people right near him. And youth will storm against the elders, and the inferior will storm against the honorable. When a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our ruler. That's just funny. What he's describing is that everyone is going to be so impoverished. They're going to have sold everything they can find for a morsel of bread or a little bit of water. People are going to no longer value the stuff they value now. Life becomes much more focused when you have no food or no water. Suddenly it doesn't matter if you have an IRA. You're willing to trade that in for just a little bit of water. Suddenly it becomes very apparent what you need in life. And then people don't care about who's the ruler, who's in charge here. And so if you find somebody who has anything, I mean at one time in Israel, everybody had a cloak. You're living in the sun. The sun beats down on you. The nights are cold. Your cloak is how you stayed warm at night and how you kept the sun off you during the day. Everybody in the Mideast had a cloak. As part of God's judgment, people are going to say they're going to go to their own brother in their own father's house and say, you've got a cloak. You be ruler. You've got anything left when everybody else has got nothing. You be our king. You're in charge. You have a cloak, you be our ruler, and these ruins will be under your charge. Isn't that something? Mm -hmm. When there's nothing left, people are still going to be looking for somebody in charge, somebody to rule over them. Because human beings just want self-governance. They do not want God to rule over them. They do not want to perform as a theocracy. And therefore they want a human being to rule over them. Even if that human being only has slightly more than they have. Then they're going to say, look, all these ruins, all these ashes, everything that's destroyed. You're the king of it. You're the king of the destruction. Just rule over us. Is it worth saying, stop regarding man whose breath is in his nostrils. For why should he be esteemed? I'll tell you why. He has a cloak. (laughs) That's why. That guy right there, he's got a coat. Yeah, he can be our king. You have a cloak, you shall be our ruler, and these ruins will be under your charge. And on that day, How often now has Isaiah continued to make reference to that day? That day, the day of the Lord, the day of God's vengeance, the day of the reckoning of the Lord. On that day when God is pouring out his wrath and human beings are responding and running and hiding and throwing away their idols as they're dying of thirst and dying of hunger under the hand of God's judgment. On that day, will human beings protest saying, I will not be your healer, for in my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You should not appoint me ruler of the people. So people are going to be so desperate for a leader, for a ruler. Are you the guy that can fix it? Yes, we're going to make you ruler and leader over all of the ruins, all the ashes, all the destruction. You get to be the king of it, and people are going to say, I can't be the answer. I'm not going to be able to heal you. I don't even have bread or a cloak. I can't feed you. I can't protect you. I can't put anything over you to make you warm or protect you from the sun, and I can't even feed your body. I have no way of taking care of you. Why would you appoint me to be ruler of the people? And people are going to be so desperate to have a ruler, they're going to say, look, a guy with a cloak. You get to be king. And human beings are not going to want to be king in that day. Why? Because that's the worst possible thing you could be when the wrath of God, the real king, shows up. I don't want to be king. Don't make me king. And human beings in their rebellion will just start making people king for any reason at all. You've got a coat, you get to be king. Everything is upside down, everything is backwards. Let's put those two verses together. When a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house saying, you have a cloak, you shall be our ruler and these ruins will be under your charge. And on that day, will he protest? He's going to argue back saying, I will not be your healer for in my house. There is neither bread nor cloak. You should not appoint me ruler of the people for Jerusalem "...has stumbled, and Judah has fallen, because their speech and their actions are against the Lord, to rebel against his glorious presence." Okay, so theological point for a moment. You will notice that when the glorious presence of God shows up, Revelation describes it as both God in his glory and the Lamb... So Christ shows up, and God shows up. Now, if all it took to get people to make a profession of faith and believe in Christ was adequate inducement, if you could talk them into it by having the right evangelistic method... If you were just more persuasive, you could talk people into deciding for Christ, deciding to make him Lord and Savior. If any of that were true, wouldn't you think the very glorious appearance in wrath of God and the Lamb would be adequate inducement to make Jesus Lord and Savior and right away go worship that God? And yet what we read here is their actions and their speech are against the Lord, and they rebel against his glorious presence. They don't say, oh, oh, it's, it's God, it's the real God, it's the glorious God, and then run to worship him and plead mercy. Instead, they run to the rocks and the caves and the dens because they want the rocks and the caves and the dens to save them and hide them and protect them, and they rebel, continue in their rebellion against the glorious God. So, Adequate inducement won't do it. It has to be God changing men's hearts. It has to be the spirit of God drawing people to God. Because you would think that this would be an adequate reason for people to come to faith. I didn't believe in you till now, but here you are. And you've got that whole glorious chariot of clouds you're riding on. And you... When we get to chapter 6, Isaiah is going to describe the glory of God that he witnessed, and it's awesome, and it's, it's mind-boggling, and it, and it causes Isaiah immediately to get down in front of him and say, whoa, it's me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Okay, good reaction. But when that God, that glorious God, returns on that day that he is appointed, It says the men of the earth are going to rebel against his glorious presence. Mm. That's how evil men are. You You want evidence of total depravity? There you go, right there. The expression of their faces bears witness against them. That means they're still arrogant. They're still proud. They're still lofty and lifted up. They've still got expressions on their face. That show rebellion against God. The expression of their faces bears witness against them. And they display their sin like Sodom. Sodom was so sinful that God rained down fire and destroyed the whole city. And here's God saying they are still full of pride, full of arrogance. You can see it on their faces. You can see it on their expression. And then they still live out their sin. They still display their sin the way Sodom did well, then it's no wonder that God's going to pour out his wrath. They do not even conceal it. And then, boy, if there were ever three more succinct words, woe to them. When God starts talking about woe, you know it's going bad. Woe to them, for they have brought trouble. Raw, evil against themselves. They're responsible for it. They're guilty and their guilt is being rightly judged. Say to the righteous that it will go well with them. That is the NASB rendering of it. The Hebrew is is more direct and succinct. It would be more like say to the righteous well. So positive, good for they will eat the fruit of their actions. Righteous people, it's going to go well for them. Woe to the wicked, it will go badly with them. Again, the Hebrew would be more like, woe to the wicked, badly. So to the righteous, say to the righteous, well. But woe to the wicked, bad, badly. For what he deserves will be done to him. O my people, their oppressors are children and women rule over them. Again, that's an example of everything being turned upside down. O my people, those who guide you lead you astray and they confuse the direction of your paths. That's why I said it's like everything is upside down and backwards. God himself now says, they confuse the direction of your paths. God is purposefully confusing their whole society, their whole approach to life, their confidence, their ability to get food, their ability to make gods, their ability to rule themselves and govern themselves. God is going to turn that upside down and confuse everything until the mighty men and the strong men and the proud men are both ruled over and oppressed by mere children, and ruled over by women. So, that is just the mere surface, the very beginning of the description of the particular day of the Lord. Now I should also say, when I say day of the Lord, I'm not talking about a 24-hour period. We know that the day of the Lord lasts longer than that in the book of Revelation. But it's going to begin, it's going to commence exactly when God has determined it's going to commence. And that's why the continual emphasis on day, the day of the Lord, on that day, it starts. And it's not going to conclude until God has accomplished everything that he means for that to accomplish which is going to be judgment against the nations and the restoration of Israel looking forward to their glorious future. Got it? Pretty intense, huh? And yet it's good to know that that God, the God who Paul said, what if God, willing to make his wrath known, put up with the vessels of wrath, So that he could show mercy to the vessels of grace that he determined beforehand, he decided all of this beforehand, he is putting up with at this very moment, he is long suffering at this very moment with the vessels of wrath. And he will continue to put up with the vessels of wrath who are fitted for destruction. Mm -hmm. And he will put up with them till that day comes. And the Bible keeps saying it, that day, that day, that day. And I just don't think people are paying enough attention to the fact that that day is coming. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.